Area 941 podcast are produced and distributed by Community Powered 94.1 KPFA Radio. Please help support Area 941 at kpfa.org. This is the Area 941 Radio Walensky Podcast. I'm Richard Walensky, and we're talking about books, about theater, about film, about television, and from time to time, even about KPFA, Pacifica Radio. My guest is Whit Stillman, whose latest novel was titled Love and Friendship, in which Jane Austen's Lady Susan Vernon is entirely vindicated. Love and Friendship is also currently a film. Whit Stillman is a director, screenplay writer, directed a trilogy in the 90s, Metropolitan Barcelona, The Last Days of Disco, more recently Damsels in Distress and Now Love and Friendship, also created a pilot called The Cosmopolitans for Amazon, which sadly is not on Amazon because I tried to watch it today and it has been removed. So we did our little pilot period for it, and then it came back on, sponsored by Geico. And I think they might be keeping it off now because I'm supposed to be writing six scripts for the series, and they know I want to go in a different story direction. So maybe they want to see whether they want to modify the pilot to adjust to the new story direction or not. So maybe that's why they have it off now. Why have you decided to go in a different direction? Well, I've sort of felt I burned up my main material in the first one. Uh, there were some changes while I was shooting it. I sort of went through a lot of the sort of story I, I, I was thinking of. And I've just gotten interested in different things that I want to get into it. So it'll be, you know, characters from the pilot, but going off in a slightly different direction. But the pilot would still be the first episode. Yes. I mean, I'm not sure how they present that. I mean, that's an interesting question where they presented it sort of as an extra bonus or a sort of introduction to the milieu, even if the story really takes a hard turn in a different way. Does the success of Love and Friendship, both in terms of the reviews and in terms of the financial success, does that change how Amazon looks at this series? I hope so. I hope so. I mean, I think they were quite pleased and quite quite positive. It was, it was me who wanted um, the chance to write the story before there is an outline of the story. So I don't like to do this thing that they like to do in a lot of areas where you're supposed to tell them the story and then write the episodes to go with the story because I think you really get quite stale material. At least I write very stale material. If you just tell me I have to do a plot outline for something I haven't thought through. And so I wanted to get the commission to do the scripts and see where the story goes. You still have Adam Brody and Chloe Savigny? I'm not sure the final configuration of all the deals. We kind of were loaded up on too many big personalities. So it's really fun. And we doubt if we can afford to sort of exclusively buy people's time so that, you know, Adam, I think, is working on a limited series now. And then he'd be available for our series. And I think Chloe generally is working on a limited series, so she'd probably be available. I don't think it's kind of situation where we can buy people's exclusive time the way they do in the big shows. Amazon has been a big boon for you. I saw that Love and Friendship was produced by Amazon. No. They actually just bought the U.S. rights at Cannes last year. So we had a three-minute promo. I hoped that they'd be involved in the production, but we were raising money for it, and they hadn't really gotten their film division going yet. So their film division got going after we'd already shot the film. 
they saw it at Cannes last year and liked it, liked the promo and bought it and then showed it to roadside attractions that wanted to put it into cinemas. So we've gotten a really favorable thing with Love and Friendship where roadside attractions is really going to town with this as a cinema release. I mean, it's a long cinema release. It's it's not going to be, you know, a streaming thing um, until just like any film later on gets to those platforms. Whit Stillman, let's talk about Love and Friendship, both the book and the film. When I was doing some research, I found that you actually had some dialogue about Jane Austen as far back as Metropolitan. What relationship from a creative standpoint does Austen have to you that goes all the way back? It's an interesting relationship from my point of view. I hated the first novel of hers I read, which was Northanger Abbey when I was 18. I wasn't ready for it. I'd never read any Gothic novels and I was in a funk university student. And uh, this often happens, I think. And I fortunately got back to her later on, like five years later, and loved her. And it was going back after 30 years to read Northanger Abbey again that I found Lady Susan. I did like Northanger Abbey when I read it again. I knew what Gothic novels were about, and a parody of them was more amusing. So I loved Lady Susan, and I'd already used little bit aspects of Mansfield Park or the critical view of Mansfield Park, Lionel Trilling's essay, in Metropolitan. And when I was writing... Metropolitan. I really had no idea if I'd get to the end of it or what would happen with it because I'd been my confidence in writing long form was nil. When things were going well, I would just grab a Jane Austen novel and read a paragraph or two just to clear the head and get that wonderful tone she has, the wonderful intelligent gaze, humorous intelligent gaze. What I noticed in uh, watching Damsels in Distress is that there was almost an Austen-like tinge to the dialogue, and that brought me back to the earlier three movies. The dialogue has its own idiosyncrasy in -hmm. those, Mm -hmm. and after watching Love and Friendship and reading the book, and reading particularly the second half of the book, which is the Austin story, it seems that on some level, that was always there in your work. Yes, I think so. So I think that we recreate very often the worlds of the authors we love. Jane Austen, J.D. Salinger, and F. Scott Fitzgerald, and Evelyn Waugh, I'd say, are the four I think a lot about in my work. You can never, you know, nor would you want to duplicate the work of the greats, but you're influenced by them. You want to bring their sort of style of comedy, let's say, to scenes you know about or or scenes of today. Damsels was a tough experience in the sense that, I mean, I love doing it and I like the movie, but a lot of people didn't like it so much. And I'm thinking now that maybe there's sort of an Emma quality to it. Like Emma is the Jane Austen novel that critics and professors tend to prefer. But among we readers, among us readers, we tend not to like Emma as much as the others. And so maybe that story in Damsels in Distress is kind of an Emma story. It's a didactic female group leader who is trying to improve those around her. And I find that very charming and likable, but I think other people get their back up against it or something, or or there are too many many silly things going on in Damsels in Distress for some people to to keep in sympathy with it. Well, I suspect after watching it that if you had made Love and Friendship before yeah. damsels, damsels would have been viewed very differently. I always hope that 
if a new film can win any converts that they might go back and reconsider some things they haven't liked so much. And that's what happened with me with Northanger Abbey. I didn't like Northanger Abbey, but it's since I liked everything else, I went back and read it and got to like it. Whit Stillman, how did you decide to go back, read the Susan Vernon story and decide that that would be the starting point for your movie? Was flailing around. I had sort of 12 years in what they call director jail, but for me it was almost director prison where you just can't get anything off the ground. Um, I made the mistake of of going to Europe for various reasons, and I thought I could take the Eurostar over to London and make films there because disco had done really well in London. There's a lot of new money there, and they were keen on the kind of projects I was doing, so there's a lot of keenness about the script level. But I was really flailing around as far as getting anything off the ground. And I found this bit of material and I thought, this is something I could do really small. I mean, this could be really funny and really small, you know, that it could be something great. But I knew it would take forever. And I'd been approached to do some of the mainstream Jane Austens, one of which got off the ground and became a great movie. And one of which was not made, was made by other people doing the same book. Because one of the problems with well-known books in the public domain, anyone can be doing them. Lady Susan Vernon's story is that it was obscure and I didn't think I'd have to race people to do my version. It turns out that I did. There was another version. And at one point, when I wasn't very far along, I went to the producer of that and asked him, you know, without having read their script, if there's any way we could partner up so they're not two projects. He was very, not very sympathetic about that at all. And, you know, wasn't interested in the least, which is good because I could burrow in and do my own version. What was the version that was really successful, can you say? I had some brief conversations with the producer of Sense and Sensibility before Ang Lee got it, and I thought that was a wonderful job. That's also Emma Thompson, I should mention, that she wrote the script and was the engine for the project. So that 12-year period, that's when I interviewed you the first time, and I (laughs) I remember saying to you, you know, a lot of these young directors, because that's what you were at the time, yes, uh, were, years past. were um, getting these big sellout projects. And you said, fine, but nobody will approach me for a sellout. I'd do it. Yeah, I was attached to one sellout project. It was a project the screenwriter later went on to write, you know, one of the films I really regretted not doing. I think I was shown the script, but it was done by someone else ultimately. And um, both both of his scripts were done by other people. And so there's a period between Metropolitan Barcelona when I was stuck on Barcelona, when I was offered a studio romantic comedy and was attached to do it. And there's some problems with it. And by the time the problems were being addressed, I'd unblocked on the Barcelona script. You know, so once you've done one film, people offer you all kinds of things. So I did get some offers after one film. But after you've done two films that point you into a certain direction or three films or whatever, if you're pointed really into certain directions, I think people stop thinking of you for something else. They think, oh, that guy's just going to do that thing he does. And so in a way, if I'd done Love and Friendship early in my career, it could have been a really big commercial opening kind of thing. I think I'm, I'm in retirement age, so I'm not sure if that'll happen. I hope it'll allow me to get financing you know, for the projects I do want to do. When I was watching it, I'm saying, damn, because I remembered that interview and you were going, I need financing. I want to get going. And then the only thing you had was damsels in distress. And suddenly you come out with a movie that's getting the reviews and the audiences that you want. I'm thinking, good, we'll see more with Stillman. Yeah. Yeah. Now it's up to me, which is a problem, too. (laughs) (laughs) So you looked at Lady Susan and this was 
after, before Damsels? It was before. A lot of these projects for me have lengthy inceptions that it, at certain points you don't really know what the inception was or whatever, but I think I actually had the original ideas for both at about the same time. Then you were able to make Damsels because it's more of a Witt Stillman film. Well, it's because I wasn't really talking about love and friendship yet. Actually, about the same time, I was reading the Damsels script with Castrock that was keen to do it. And I was thinking of going out with a casting for Love and Friendship. And the casting agents did like it. I mean, the agents for actresses were interested in it. But I felt that the script wasn't ready yet. And I had the green light for Damsels. So I had more years to work on Love and Friendship. When I look at the various versions, uh, the big changes that I see between Jane Austen, well, there are three changes. One is the addition of a character, James Martin, who just appears as second or third hand. There's no actual scene with him in it in the Jane Austen. Yes, in a Pistore novel, if someone is not a letter writer, they don't fully exist. So he is described in a scene in which to a lot of Jane Austen biographers, they say this is where she seems to be straining at the bounds of the epistolary novel. She's turning this letter into a novelistic scene. But he doesn't write any letters himself, so he doesn't fully exist in the epistolary sense. And he's not in part of any conversation being related. It's just he's... He's a buffoon. I mean, he's, he's one of these useful elements in a story that doesn't really have that much of a role himself. So it's analogous a little bit to when Hitchcock talks about the MacGuffin. The MacGuffin is like the thing everyone's fighting right. over, but in itself, it's not important. Well, the other big change in the story, of course, is the ending is very, very different. What leads to the ending is very, very different. I thought it was just one big twist. One big twist with the consequences of that twist. Okay. I think most of it is there. But she, it seems that she sort of lost patience with the format and just did this perfunctory conclusion in her version. So we had to have a more of a rounded ending. Well, in discussing the book Love and Friendship with Stillman, discussing the book in the New York Review of Books, Adam Thurlwell mentions that one of the biggest changes is that Austin clearly disapproves of Susan Vernon, whereas Whit Stillman clearly does not disapprove. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think it's given that, that she's a bad person and she you know, is not to be trusted in any way. But I can't stop enjoying her manipulations. And I think in a strange way, she is an inspiration, a role model of how to sort of survive in the world and how to dominate events rather than, rather than succumb to them. So her objectives aren't, aren't right and we shouldn't be as she is. But her, her tactics and techniques are pretty good and useful. And so... I see a lot of similarities in, in some of these heroines, like the Greta Gerwig heroine in Damsels in Distress, who's virtuous, but is trying to make things happen. I don't see her as consciously manipulative, whereas... She's unsuccessful, very unsuccessful at the manipulation. Interesting sort of philosophical question. Good manipulative people, manipulative people who are very virtuous and good. And I suppose those are our Gandhis and Franklin Roosevelt's and things like that. Which I guess she's aspiring to be, whereas what Susan's aspiring to do is make sure that as a 35-year-old widow, she's not going to find herself on the street. Yeah, yes. And to make sure also that her daughter 
has a very nice house to live in that she might be invited to stay in also. Do you think some of the difference between you and Austin also has to do with the morality of the time, or is it just that Austin was a teenager? It's very interesting, the changes in point of view that occurred between the end of the 18th century and the first decades of the 19th century. And Jane Austen paralleled these developments, and maybe she was a leader of, of these changes in a certain way. So there's a sense in which the 18th century is very close to to us, to the way we look at things. We're, we're much closer really to the 18th century in our perspective than we are to the first half of the 19th century. And so Jane Austen in certain ways is a precursor of the good side of Victorianism. I mean, there's a very good side of Victorianism. There's, they're trying to be virtuous and and respectable in, in, in nice ways and, and um, constructive. I mean, it's hard to say because Jane Austen, it's so much about her, her critical sensibility, her comical, intelligent view of the world and life and character types. But she did go from Lady Susan to works like Pride and Prejudice, and which is Lady Susan, she chooses not to publish or, or fully finish in the Jane Austen sense, fully finished, it's concluded, but not fully finished. And then when she's taking Pride and Prejudice through the press, she felt that it was too light and airy and that she wanted to write something more serious and more somber. And that was Mansfield Park, which became the controversial book because it is very much about virtue and principle and I think very kind of Victorian in its virtues. And so we see a lot of these changes happening in Jane Austen's life. One thing I remember about Pride and Prejudice is that when I read it in high school, it was treated as a very serious novel. And it's only later in rereading it that I realized it's a, it's a comedy. I mean, from my own experience, I would think it's, it's premature to read Jane Austen in high school. You know, a lot of the sort of censorious types go on about, oh, high school kids shouldn't be reading this book or that book. And I think they shouldn't be reading this book and that book because they're ruining good books that they'll appreciate much more in five years. So why not be reading just a lot of good young adult fiction when you're that age? And no, I don't want to, I don't really mean that because I do think there are novels that really connect with people in those years that are good, you know, great literature. And so this side of paradise is not perhaps great literature, but it's a great book for a 15 year old to read. It's understandable that they study Great Gatsby and don't study this side of paradise. We studied Billy Budd by Herman Melville, and that was a great book to study in class. As you were looking at Austen and taking the epistolatory novel and trying to turn it into a screenplay, how do you go about doing that? Was there a process that you used? When I tell you how many years I had this on my desk, um, they think, wow, that's terrible, 12 years, 14 years, whatever it was. I shouldn't say it was on my desk, it was sort of in the cupboard most of the time. But it's just that I knew that this should be a pleasure project and one that takes a long time and is not worked at sort of under tight deadlines and sweating to get a draft to the producers who wanted it yesterday and are paying you some money to do it. And so there is kind of a crossing the Alps feeling of turning letters into scenes. And there's a lot of geography to figure out because the letters have to be written from apart, so everyone's apart, and you have to make it the story in which everyone's together within an earshot so they can fall in love with each other and talk to each other. I think that hearing the anecdote that the director Alexander Payne tells about his adaptation class at USC, 
where the teacher asks the students, what does the screenwriter owe to the original work? What does the actor owe to the original work? And they're all supposed to shout out, shout out nothing. So I do think that people, when they're making a film, they should make it any way they can to make it a good film. It's not about turning the book into a comic book. On the other hand, what I had to work with was this incredibly wonderfully funny material and funny both in the sort of character sense and in the text sense of funny lines and funny remarks and observations. And so I didn't want to get far away from it. I just wanted to get it in a form that would flow like a, a film story. Well, every so often as reading the Jane Austen, you see these segments that are directly in the movie and, of course, in your novelization also. Yeah, yeah. yeah. But you, everything has to be transformed because it's just a monologue right. in a pistolary novel with just letters. I mean, they were essentially long monologues and that you have to shuffle them so their conversations back and forth. I noticed that there was uh, one sequence involving her daughter and uh, Reginald, which takes place completely differently. I think it's with letters between them yes, rather exactly. than at the church. Yes. So that is one of the cases where there were letters, even though people were in the same house. And so normally, you know, for letters, people should be, you know, far away and it goes through the post. In this case, with the idea that she's very shy and retiring, she leaves him a letter and that's how they can have an exchange of letters. I had to invent the Mrs. Cross character in the movie to have some of the information that Lady Susan was writing back and forth with Alicia Johnson, to have some of that information in the present scene while they're in Churchill together. I also noticed something else which meant that the audience has to think quick. Lady Susan and another character just talking with each other and suddenly it looks like they're engaged and we don't actually see any yes. of that sequence at all. Yes. And we have to kind of make the leap ourselves. Yes. I mean, it's something I've actually done in other films where there's a lot of story going on. And so there's story happening. Mean, dialogue is boring if it's just people exchanging words. There has to be story going on. And so they're building story right there in the present as things change. And then they also refer to information which implies all this story has happened that we've not been privy to, but we now find out about. It throws people off, but it kind of keeps it interesting for them. That, oh, wow, we're finding out all this stuff. The, the Reginald and, and Lady Susan had a secret engagement that we didn't know about. When did that happen? The other thing I noticed in the movie, and it's not in the book, is that the entire opening sequence when you're introducing all the characters is her leaving the man-wearing house. Yes. And if you pay attention to that, Everything that comes afterward, including the ending, is clear. I thought it was a great way to open it. I mean, because I'm dealing with something that is not intrinsically cinematic. And how can you have a like, great cinematic scene? And that was like the best prize cinema I've been lucky enough to have happen. The reason that it isn't as noticeable as it could be is because you're introducing seven or eight characters. And as an audience member, I'm watching this, I'm going, okay, this is this character, this is this character, this is this character. At the same time, I can't be paying attention to what's actually going on on screen. Yes, it's to give an impression instead of tone. People really aren't responsible for that information. I mean, the early sort of rough cut screenings we had in the conference room of the co-producers in Paris, one of the concerns when people had is, oh, I couldn't follow all the information in those portrait sequences. We thought this through and we said that 
we're not expecting people to retain or or even be able to read all that information to, just to give a tonal impression of, of things well what, suggest the world well what happens is that we eventually do figure it out but by then that initial opening scene has been forgotten and it isn't until the last 10 minutes of the movie that it comes back yes the voice of Reginald saying langford langford if it only had been for Langford, that is something from a later scene where he's disillusioned in his relationship with Susan and this these events that happened at Langford is what's troubling him so he can't, you know, continue with her or he she can't continue with him. This is a historical film. I mean it's taking place in a yeah. different time. Uh was there a CGI in there? Well, we were able to remove things that were out of period. So we tried to find the most beautiful period locations we could and be very careful in not showing other things. But if you want a sweeping countryside with this beautiful old castle in it, in the distant, 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 there's some not period buildings on the other side of a bay. So we had VFX to you know adjust those things. And certain locations were beautiful locations, but they'd put in wires for a bell or, or a security device and we would get rid of all those things. What prompted you, Whit Stillman, to write the book? The book was a crazy idea. I'd done this before with The Last Days of Disco with Cocktails of Petrosian that Ferrar Strauss published in 2000 and finally had its great payoff time in translation in France where it won an award, the, the Prix Fitzgerald. So that novel finally paid off in 2014. I had an experience with this script as a great read for people. So I thought, well, this is a not a novel version of a modern novel version of her epistolary work. So just as she turned um, Eleanor and Marianne into the modern style, sense and sensibility and the epistolary first impression into Pride and Prejudice, I could turn the Lady Susan Vernon story into that form that, Jane Austen always put her her works into. But then I did the movie before I wrote the novel, and in doing the movie I discovered the Martin family, and this character suggested itself, Rufus Martin Colonna, and he became sort of the ideal comic narrator for this absurd um, project. It was kind of a dream. I mean, it was really high stakes, and I had to sort of beg and trick Little Brown to give me enough time to properly finish it. And there are still a few details that are wrong um, that we have to correct. So he's publishing this in 1868, um, not 1858. And um, a friend pointed out there's some split infinitives, and there wouldn't have been split infinitives, um, a, a proper fellow writing in that period. So I'll try to correct that in the next printing. Well, that brings up the question of the dialogue in Love and Friendship and the movie and the book which is ensuring that the dialogue represents the era, represents yes. the period. So I did quite a bit of work on that. We did sort of more layers and levels of work on the film than on the novel because everything with the novel was so rushed. I had already been through the process on the film, so the script had already been vetted. And I think we really made the, the film very correct in everything. And this is a case also of a different period. So... Rufus Martin Clune is writing in a closer period to us. Um, he's writing in the 1850s. So I had to have it constant with his period, too, and how he would refer to the 1790s. Was there any issues with the actors in the film being in the period? I assume Chloe Sevigny and 
Kate Beckinsale have done period films. And I'm not sure if Chloe has. Um, really? So I think it might have been a new page for, for Chloe. And I like the idea of changing the character to a Connecticut Tory exile, one of the loyalists who is sent over. Most of the actors are very experienced in um, period. And I think Chloe did a wonderful job. And I think she adds a, a nice lightness. And I don't think people realize how important it is listening to the talkative, funny person and reacting in a way that increases your enjoyment. And working with the actor playing James Martin. Yes. I mean, he, he was brilliant. Yes, he really was brilliant. Tom Bennett had the part, and there were only a few scenes in the script when he signed on to do it. But as I heard him read through it at our table reading, I just thought it was so brilliant. I wanted more scenes for him, and fortunately got a lot of ideas for material while we were shooting the film. Is that where the peas scene came in? Yeah, the peas came in then. Um, I wanted to see a tight close-up of Tiny Green Balls. And um, a scene about the commandments came in, a dancing scene where he dances, a little scene by the door where he gives Susan Vernon a large loan and, and lends her, hires a carriage for her. Well, there's also a, a telescoping where in the Austin, the daughter arrives at a different time before he does, whereas here he's actually chasing her into the house. She's already there. I mean, the cutting is very fast. And one of the things about the film, and I hope to continue this in the future, is it's very quick. And we don't linger on things. And um, she's already there in the movie, but she's not much of a character. She's just the sad daughter. And it's only when he arrives that she comes in as a major character and the mother trying to persuade her to accept him. One other thing you do in the film is telescope time. So we really don't know from scene to scene, except from context, exactly how much time has passed. I think we do that in a lot of our films. I mean, sometimes we've used cards to tell people right, yeah. what's happening, and we don't do that much. In this case, I think we might do it one or two times. I just like to trust the audience and jump ahead, and they'll, they'll figure it out. I think one of the problems of the sort of post-production film process now is trying to answer every audience question too early. And all those questions are to be answered. But the thing is, um, do you have to explain everything right away? Or can you let them figure things out as they go through? And I think generally people find it a more interesting experience to have to figure some things out themselves. One of the uh, hallmarks of love and friendship is that you rely on the intelligence of the audience. Yeah, I mean, it's a bit of an erector set where they have to you know, figure out you know, what's real and what's unreal because we're dealing with a major character who's a big liar, and a very, very <laughs> successful liar. Fortunately, she, she tells, tells the truth to herself and to her best friend. Sister-in-law and her mother are on to her. They see through everything and are terrified that she's going to prevail anyway. There's also an interesting sequence in the film where the father is reading the letter to the mother. That is directly from Austin, but it's in a completely different format. Yeah, that was uh, good. Um, you're maybe referring to something that happened in editing. We yeah. added oh. an element. Um, There's a really nice scene in any case, you know, without that, but it became funnier for us with it. How much was cut out of the rough cut to bring it down to? Well, I had a real problem because between Kate and myself, we looked critically at a lot of the scenes and decide some weren't necessary and cut others down. So I kept sort of cutting what had been the main sort of dialogue scenes back. And then I kept adding more material 
of a sort of sketch comedy kind with um, Sir James Martin and, and uh, other people. And so we were a little scared of coming up short in the edit. There weren't many things I dropped, but I, I did find some things not necessary. And in the edit, we didn't use them, but the little good moments from those scenes I tried to include at the end in the actor's montage where they sort of take a curtain call and you get to meet each of the actors with their name. And we have, a you know, generally from scenes we cut out a line or two. So I could save a few lines, a few good lines from those scenes. In the book that you wrote afterward, you were able to incorporate some of that material back into the book? Occasionally, but, you know, once you decide that something is not that interesting, it's very hard then to decide, well, actually, yeah, it's interesting. I mean, you can get away with more text, of course, in a book, more dialogue in a book. But still, I mean, I'd already done that work of deciding that it wasn't necessary. I understand you sold the book via a Twitter page. Yeah, um, because I was being given a lot of static by everyone who knows about the business, that things aren't the same these days, that you have to write a lot of the book before you can get a contract and all that kind of stuff. And um, I already had the script. I mean, the script was getting a good reaction. When people read it, I was far from getting finance. I was far from having the script in a good form to shoot, but it was a read. I mentioned on Twitter that I was thinking of doing a book and immediately got a reply from an assistant at Little Brown. And within a month, I had a contract. So before the film was set up, before I knew I'd have a film, I had the obligation to, to write this novel. And I was very terrified. And I went through all my deadlines. I just finished before I, I shot the film, but I couldn't because at that point you have more to do than you can possibly do anyway. And so I didn't get started until after I finished the picture lock before we handed it over to sound and post-production. And that was great because I just discovered so many more things. I did so much more research about the story and the period. And these great characters came to the fore, like um, Charles Vernon, the, the husband of Churchill, and um, Sir James Martin. When a film is shown, and let's talk about your last two films, when you're watching it for that first time in a theater, uh, can you stay objective and look at it, or, or is it so much part of your life that you just have to leave the room because you don't know what you did anymore? No, I, I have to watch the films a lot for work reasons, and also just socially. Occasionally it's inconvenient to sort of leave while other people are watching, so I just stay with them and watch it again. And I really enjoy them. I can see the films like with an audience that doesn't like it or is not getting it. And then I see all the flaws and all the bad stuff. But generally, if people are liking it, I find it a you know, really positive experience. Whit Stillman, now the, the film has come out and the book has come out. And you're busy working on Cosmopolitan's, those teleplays. Uh, are you also working on any film and also... The New York Review of Books review also mentioned that it would appear you'd be a perfect candidate to direct uh, Henry James. I think you only feel emotional. I mean, you, I think intellectually you can feel, I admire this novelist, I admire that novelist, this great literature. But emotionally, you're only loving certain people. And Henry James wouldn't be one of those people. I mean, I've sort of fallen into a Henry Jamesian life because I'm mostly living abroad and a lot of what he wrote is just very true and you notice it. But I mean, there's so many novels that I really love and novelists whose work I really love that I'll never have a chance to do. So, you know, Tolstoy, Balzac, all these people one loves. So I'd, I'd do them before I would do um, Henry James. 
But it sounds as if this has opened a huge door for you. You're not stuck in Wick Stillman territory. Yeah, I mean, it has shown me that I can have access to more of an audience if I work with someone else's work. I mean, it's a bit humiliating and shame-making. The first real kid is the one, you know, with another writer really doing the heavy work. Maybe my stories aren't that interesting. So I would like to, you know, find good material. I do have original stories I want to do. When I was in director prison, you know, when you're in prison, there's not much to do except write film scripts. And so I, I have written these things that I think, you know, and other people also think are, are good projects and I'd like to do, but they're kind of hard to finance. So I, I've been criticized for only doing films about white people or something like that, although it's not true. Um, Damsels in Distress is actually a substantially minority film. But the projects I wanted to do that I couldn't do, the industry wouldn't let me do because they didn't go ahead, were all about other subjects. So it was entirely black Christian story in early 60s Jamaica. So kids coming out of a church and going into the music scene there, the backdrop of the music scene in Jamaica. And, and I did get Ellen Britton, the head of my division, the relevant division of the UK Film Council, said, what is this? And then I had a... Um, a project set in the Cultural Revolution in China, which is a subject that's always interested me. And it's been two of the projects I wanted to do were set in the Cultural Revolution in China. Again, that didn't happen. And then I even had an adaptation of Christopher Buckley's Little Green Men. So I don't think people can say I'm only interested in white subjects. I mean, Little Green Men, are, of course, are green. The industry, I mean, I typecast when I cast. I mean, if I see someone who's just exactly the type, I want them. And the film industry typecast too. And uh, so I do get people occasionally mentioning certain projects that seem logical for me, but these projects I was interested in did not seem logical to the industry. So it's possible now that maybe you can expand and maybe yeah. even do a Hitchcock type film if you want it. I mean, the thing is, if you are getting the drug of comedy as you write and as you show your works to other people, and if you kind of are wanting and needing that laugh, you want that, get that amused reaction. Then the idea of getting into things that are essentially relying on things other than comedy, it makes me wonder whether I have the stamina to do that. I mean, there is a lot of humor in a lot of one's favorite um, directors, such as you know Hitchcock, Ford. They were funny. They had all kinds of comedy going on. But I'm not sure if, if I know how to do the other part, the thriller part, the tension part. This is probably why I need to work off other other works. So I'd really like to find things in the public domain that can be adapted into something else. So public domain is great because they, they can't take it away from you. Other people can do the same thing, but they can't say you've lost the option. So I've had this happen several times. I vowed never to get in this situation where you write a screenplay and the people you're writing for, for lose the underlying material. So you're left essentially with the building but not the land under it. And it, no, it's actually worse because it, some buildings you can actually move to another plot of land, but a screenplay about something particular, you can't move away from the copyright. Love and Friendship was public domain, so yes. there you go. And, and an author who is not going to interfere or object or give nasty interviews. So I'm very grateful to her on every level. I'm very grateful to Jane Austen. And I hope everyone will take a look at our novel. You don't have to buy it. You can go to the library too. 
It's love and friendship in which Jane Austen's Lady Susan Vernon is entirely vindicated. To listen to more of these interviews, go to my website, bookwaves.com, or find the Bookwaves and Arts Waves podcasts at kpfa.org. Or you can subscribe to both podcasts via iTunes. Until next time, I'm Richard Walensky on the Area 941 Radio Walensky podcast. <laughs>